about the subject of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible, uh, the Bible teachings about the Holy Spirit and his work, perhaps is one of the most neglected. I mean, how often do you hear a sermon on the Holy Spirit? <laughs> how often do I preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit? Brother H. Leo Bowles has written a book on the Holy Spirit, and he mentions, I think it must be in the introduction, about how in the 18th century, emphasis among theologians was placed upon Jehovah God, God the Father. And I shouldn't have said Jehovah God the Father. That's all right, but Jehovah applies to the Godhead, not just the Father. Then in the 19th century, he says that the emphasis has been shifted somewhat from the Father to the Son. Theologians thought about Jesus Christ during this period. And his hope was that during the 20th century, the century in which we live, that more emphasis will be placed upon the Holy Spirit, his person, and his work, as we find it in the Bible. Certainly, this subject is grounded or garbed with ignorance and a lot and a lot of superstition. Rather than to look into the Bible and to study and research as to uh, the nature of the Holy Spirit, a lot of people are disregarding the Bible and they're looking to men and into their hearts and let them explain their supposed experiences brought about by the Holy Spirit which we think is the wrong approach. When I was uh, interested in becoming a member of the Lord's family, having been brought up in the Christian church, Brother Jack Meyer, who preached where we attended, came to the home, and the first question I had to ask him was, what or who is the Holy Spirit? Now, he probably thought that's not a good place to start, but he gave us, I'm sure, a good, adequate answer to the question. Because I, you know, what is the Holy Spirit? I didn't know how to answer, ask the question even. Or who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is thought by some to be some mystical influence. Mystical, you know, something that's vague. And that you can't really put your finger on. And just an influence. Or it is an impersonal force. It, I should have said. And he is some impersonal force. But when they refer to the Holy Spirit in that manner, they're thinking about a it rather than a he. The Holy Spirit has not been accepted by everybody as a part of the Godhead. But he is more than the mind or the temper or the disposition of God or of Jesus Christ. And certainly the Holy Spirit is not the Word of God. Now, I don't know if this is just a Texas doctrine, but I've, I ran into it in Texas. Uh, maybe it's just here and there in the Brotherhood. But I, I preached on the subject of the Holy Spirit one time, some time ago, there. And after the ser service was over, one dear sister came up to me and she said, You know, I, I was taught a long time ago that the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. And... That's what I've always believed, and I guess I'll die believing that. And I smiled. <laughs> I didn't think it was any good going over the sermon again if it didn't really um, change your ideas about that. Well, if you fit into that category, I hope you'll pay close attention tonight. 
The Holy Spirit is not the Word. Now, maybe that was brought about. Maybe they misunderstood. Maybe nobody teaches that the Holy Spirit is the Word of God, and some people just, you know, got the wrong idea. Because it is taught that when the Holy Spirit dwells within us and makes the body the temple of the Holy Spirit, as 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 refer, some think that it's not the Holy Spirit himself, but he, he indwells the Christian by means of the Word of God. And somehow, perhaps, they've equated the Word of God with the Holy Spirit. Well, we're not going to discuss that question tonight. We're discussing who the Holy Spirit is. His nature. We mentioned that there are, there are a few who do not believe that Jesus is a divine person. Give you some names. For example, the Jehovah's, the, the Jehovah Witnesses. They do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Christadelphians do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. They think it's just the power of God. And this is the way they reason. The Bible says there's one God, and we accept all of that. Well, they say, Jehovah the Father is one God. So Jesus would make two gods, and the Holy Spirit would make three. And so they refer to, the Holy, to Jesus Christ as a God, a little God, not almighty God. Well, they've still got two gods, not on the same par, but uh, they are trying to get away from this one God teaching in the Bible and coming up with one and a half gods that way. And then, of course, they don't believe that the Holy Spirit is deity, as I said, some impersonal force. And the Christadelphians reason in the same way. Now, the Mormons, uh, they believe in uh, polytheism. They believe there are a bunch of gods. Well, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And uh, since Jehovah was Adam, this is Mormonism, that someday all Mormons are going to be a God. And so uh, they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe in whatever you'd call everybody being a God, polytheism. Uh, the Christian scientists, they say something about a Holy Spirit. But they don't believe in anything that's personal. It's just uh, principle. So these are some of the folks who do not believe in the Trinity. The Bible is our only source of information. The Bible is our only authority for all that we may know about the Holy Spirit. Let's begin this way and say that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He's a person. We're going to emphasize his divinity a little bit later on, but a person. When we turn to Acts chapter 5 and verse 3 and 4, notice the way God and the Holy Spirit are used interchangeably by the Apostle Peter. This was uh, the story about Ananias and Sapphira. And Peter asked Ananias, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? You remember... They sold it for a certain price. They only brought part of it. They kept the back part of it. But they left the impression by deception that they were giving all that they'd received for the sale of that land. And so Peter asked him, Why has the Holy Spirit filled our heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse 4. While it remained, did it not remain thine own? That is, while you had the money, it was, it was yours. 
you could do what you wanted with it. And after it was sold, was it not in thy power? Now how is it that thou hast conceived this thing in thy heart, that thou hast not lied unto men but unto God? Lied unto the Holy Spirit, lied unto God. The Holy Spirit and God are used by the Apostle Peter as equivalent. I think this is an elliptical question when he says, Thou hast not only thou hast lied, thou hast not lied to men, but thou hast lied to God. Well, they had lied, Ananias and Sapphira, to men. And it's so obvious that they omit two words. That's why we call it an elliptical question. Thou and the full statement would be, Thou hast lied not only, there's the only, to men, but also, there's the second word, to God. And that's exactly what they had done. But what I want us to notice is that the Holy Spirit and God are the same. The Spirit of God is God the Spirit. Now, there are different names, a number of names that are used to describe the Holy Spirit. If you use the King James, then you'll find the Holy Ghost being used there. But we find also the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, just Spirit or Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Truth, my Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Jehovah, the Comforter, and probably other names as well. I think most modern versions translate Holy Spirit rather than Holy Ghost. And I don't have any objections to whatever name people use there. Holy Ghost goes back to the 1611 uh, edition. I remember hearing Brother C.R. Nichols. He's dead, but he was a very popular and well-known gospel preacher back in Oklahoma and Texas. Telling about when he grew up as a boy, they lived in Tennessee. Folks lived on a farm. And they had uh, some folks who worked for them. One lady had a little house back behind their house. And he and his brothers and sisters loved to go out there at night when this lady was off the work, went home to do her own work, and they would follow her there, and she would tell them ghost stories. And they just stayed there all night, I guess, and she kept on, but it got dark, and so they had to go back home. Didn't have outdoor lights like we have today, so they had to run, and I'm sure that's what they did. They ran from her house to their house thinking about all those ghost stories and expecting a ghost to jump out on them any time. But he said that upbringing sort of put him off using the term ghost. He likes Holy Spirit better. Actually, when it speaks about the Spirit, or the Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of the Father, and the Spirit of Jehovah, you could never substitute ghost. That, that wouldn't fit. The ghost of Jesus, the ghost of Jehovah, the, you know, it's, it's got to be the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, or, it's, uh, or else it has to be the Spirit, or it wouldn't make much sense. Here is the definition for a person. A being conscious of self, subsisting in individuality and identity, and endowed with intuitive reason, rational sensibility, and a free will. Now that's a, that's a definition, isn't it? And what we're saying, we break that down, we're talking about what or who is a person. A being... Conscious of self, of individuality, identity, reason, senses, and a free will. 
And so the Holy Spirit fulfills this definition, and we're going to look at a number of scriptures in a minute to see that. And we'll find again that he's not just an influence. He's referred to it with the personal pronoun. We don't find the word it used. Now, you may in the King James. One of the, I don't know if the safeguard is a good word, but uh, let me explain this. That in the language, the Greek language, and this is true in other languages, even in English, that when you have a subject and then you want to refer back to that subject with a pronoun, it has to match, doesn't it? You say, now, Paul went down that way. He went that way. You wouldn't say she went that way. They have to match. Masculine with masculine and so forth. Well, in the Greek language, you can have the subject and the verb in one word. And you just change the ending of that word to show whether it's I'm going or I'm or he's going or you're going. And so when they use the word spirit, not necessarily just for the Holy Spirit, but just spirit. I mean, men, women have spirits. It's not divine. That is a neuter word. And so you would refer to it with the pronoun it. And so they use this the Holy Spirit used the emphatic pronoun when uh, a pronoun was used. Let me give you an example. Maybe you'll know what I'm talking about better. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, But when he, the Comforter, has come, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. Notice he identifies the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and then he refers to the Holy Spirit as he. Because there's a special pronoun. He used another pronoun. He didn't just use the ending to signify whether it's he or it or she. And so the Holy Spirit who revealed the Bible did that. And that's why you'll find he or himself or his being used to refer to the Holy Spirit rather than it. A definite work which proclaims his personality. All right, let's look at some of these. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, I'm going to read several. You may wish to follow me. And here it's talking about the spiritual gifts. Some nine are mentioned. And the Holy Spirit is mentioned several times as being the one who gave the gifts. But notice how, we'll start with um, verse 4 and read through 11. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Holy Spirit now. And there are diversities of ministrations and the same Lord. And there are diversities of workings, but the same God who worketh all things in all. He mentions the Spirit, Lord, and God, the Godhead. Verse 7. But to each one, each disciple, is given the manifestation of the Spirit to profit with all. For to one is given through the Spirit, the word of wisdom, and to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith in the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healings in the same or in the one Spirit, and to another workings of miracles, and to another prophecies, and to another discernings of spirits, to another, and this discerning of spirits is the good spirits or the bad spirits, not the, whether they were prophesying and teaching the right thing. To another, diverse kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, notice verse 11. But all these workings, these nine miracles and signs, 
the one and the same Spirit, dividing to each one severally or individually, even as he will. Paul tells us at the end of chapter 12, where we're just reading, that everybody didn't receive the same gifts. Well, who decided what brother was going to receive the, uh, the sign of miracles, another the sign of governments, another the sign of prophecy, and so forth? The Holy Spirit. He gave these gifts to different ones as he chose to do it. He used his will. He had a free will. Uh, we notice that also when we turn to Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Was the question asked. And the answer was, well, uh, which having at the first been spoken to the Lord was confirmed unto us by them that heard. Notice verse 4. God bearing, also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by manifold powers and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So here we have the same thought, that the Holy Spirit using his will. Well, let's look at uh, Ephesians 4 and 30 and following, where it says, To grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, in whom ye were redeemed, or unto the, in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, the exhortation is, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, how could we grieve an impersonal thing? I mean, I could pound on this table, this pulpit. I wouldn't grieve. I mean, there's no soul there. I remember uh, a man who, whose car just went dead, just stopped on him. He was going somewhere, and it was just dead. He got out, and he started kicking that car like it had a soul, <laughs> like it had done something purposely against him. Well, the Holy Spirit has a soul. I mean, he is a spirit. He is a soul, I guess you could say. And so he can be grieved. He's not impersonal. He is, he is personal. A lesson might be how we could grieve the Holy Spirit. Perhaps being in this way, a person obeys the gospel. And then... He goes off and worships in a denomination. That grieves the Holy Spirit. Because there's vain false worship there. Here's one who has obeyed the gospel and just becomes unfaithful. That's another way of grieving the Holy Spirit. And then the context would suggest another way we might grieve the Holy Spirit. That's verse 30. We'll read on from 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind, one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ Jesus forgave you. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by not being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving to one another. So the Holy Spirit is a person that can be grieved. He can be despised. In Hebrews 10, 29, it speaks about those who would turn their backs on the Lord. And let me read Hebrews 10, what did I say, 29? 
of how much sore punishment, think ye, shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and notice, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Can we do that to the Holy Spirit? Well, the writer says that we can. Can we blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, in Matthew 12, Jesus said we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the word blaspheme mean? Well, as we all know, it means to speak against. We can speak against the Holy Spirit. Look at uh, verse 31. Therefore I say unto you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in that which is to come. And so the Holy Spirit is a person against whom we can, well, we can speak against. Uh, We can blaspheme. Well, the question often is asked, well, how can we get forgiveness when we blaspheme the the Son of God, Jesus Christ, but we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we can't get forgiveness? Never. Well, the difference is in this way. A person can turn in his allegiance and faith to Jesus Christ because of the testimony and the revelation of the Holy Spirit. They believe in Jesus Christ. Those today who read what the Holy Spirit has revealed, they accept his testimony. But if we reject that testimony, we won't believe in Jesus. And we'll never get forgiveness because we turned him down. So it's still based upon that. The Holy Spirit has revealed to us that which produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing with the word of God. And if we don't accept his witnessing, his testimony, his word, then we'll never get forgiveness. Cannot obey the gospel. We wouldn't want to obey the gospel. So we can do, we can speak against the Holy Spirit. We might notice how we can resist the Holy Spirit. In Acts 7.51. This is a, uh, well let me just read 51 then I'll background it. Stephen says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed them, that showed before of the coming of the righteous one, of whom ye have now become betrayers and murderers. Ye who received the law as it was ordained by angels and kept it not. He said, you've resisted the Holy Spirit. When we back up to the sixth chapter, Paul, uh, rather Stephen, is in a synagogue. This is in Jerusalem. And it's called the Synagogue of the Libertines. These were Jews who had been slaves. They had received their freedom. And now they sort of congregated together in this particular synagogue. You know, they, they had a similar background, and so they liked to be together. But it's also a synagogue that's referred to as that of the... Uh, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those who came from the northern part of Africa, as well as from Cilicia and Asia. Now, Paul, 
was from Cilicia, Tarsus of Cilicia. And I can see very reasonably why Paul was uh, in there, taking part in that debate that Stephen won and they lost. You remember he, uh, they had to uh, bribe some witnesses who brought false testimony against Stephen. And they gave him a chance to preach, and all of chapter 7 is that sermon, most all of it. And then uh, we read where he speaks up to them, that you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. And so what do they do? Verse 54 says that when they heard these things that Stephen had been preaching, and his charge against them being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and so forth. And then notice uh, verse 58, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I think Saul was in that synagogue, being from Cilicia, and he's taking a lead when they didn't agree with what Stephen had to say. He's the one who's sort of overseeing it, supervising it. And those who picked up the stones to throw at him laid their coats at his feet. But the point we're trying to make in this lesson is that they had always resisted the Holy Spirit. Well, how can you resist an impersonal thing? The Holy Spirit is and was a person. And as we've already mentioned, he was lied to. Well, another thing that refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. In 1 Timothy 4, 1, it says that the Spirit saith expressly that in later times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of demons and so forth. Paul said, the Spirit speaks. The Spirit says. And he was prophesying what was going to happen later on. But the Holy Spirit presented the lesson, or the message, or the prophecy. The Holy Spirit speaks. He also teaches. We've already looked at John 14, 26. When the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things. The Holy Spirit can teach, and did teach. Let me give you an example of the speaking and teaching at the same time. Back in Acts 8, I say back, Remember, Philip was preaching in Samaria. And an angel appeared to, to Philip and said, Now I want you to go down toward Gaza. So he goes. And he comes up near a chariot in which the Ethiopian eunuch was, was riding. And then the Holy Spirit, not the angel, but the Holy Spirit, appears unto Philip and he says, Join thyself unto the chariot. So here's the Holy Spirit telling, speaking, Directly to Philip and telling him what he should do. Also, in uh, <clears throat> Matthew 10 20, Jesus is preparing his 12 for the Great Commission. The first part, just the verses preceding, he tells them what to do in the Limited Commission. But then for the Great Commission, we'll start at verse 17. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, and in their synagogues they will scourge you, yea. And before governors and kings shall ye be brought 
for my sake, for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, be not anxious how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what ye shall speak. Now notice verse 20. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father that speaketh in you. So here's just another example of the Holy Spirit speaking and teaching and guiding into all the truth. One other example is that the Holy Spirit led and uh, forbid the guidance that uh, they were looking for. And we turn to Acts 16. Paul, Silas, Timothy were on their way from Galatia and Cilicia and Phrygia with the gospel. Well, let's start at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden of the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, Ephesus was a big city. It was the capital of Asia. We don't mean Asia we think of today, but Asia Minor, uh, just that part of Turkey today. And so they thought, well, we'll go there. The Holy Spirit said, no. A person speaking said, no. In verse 7, and when they were come over against Mysia, they assayed, that is, they tried to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus suffered them not, allowed them not to go there. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And then a vision appeared to Paul, a man from Macedonia, said, come over and help us. So here's an example for the apostles in the first century of leading them a certain way and guiding them not to go other ways. Well, there are many other scriptures that we might use to show how the work and personality of the Holy Spirit. But briefly, let me mention that here are some scriptures that talk about the divine traits. Hebrews 9 and 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is eternal. Referring to the eternal spirit. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Deity is from everlasting to everlasting. No beginning, no end. And the Holy Spirit is from everlasting unto everlasting. When we turn to 1 Corinthians 2, we find a number of things about the Holy Spirit. He searches. He's omniscient, is what we want to notice at this point. Beginning at verse 9, and we'll read to 11. And this is a scripture sometimes used to refer to heaven, but it's not talking about heaven. But as it is written, things which I saw not and ear heard not, and the Spirit of God. And uh, we might mention one more thing, and that is the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. When we turn to Psalm 139, beginning at verse 7, it says, And whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shalt thy hand hold me and thy right hand lead me. So the Holy Spirit 
is everywhere. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. And he's omnipotent. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all had a part in the creation. And so they're omnipotent. The God that we believe in is omnipotent. So the same divine attributes that are ascribed in the Bible to God and to Jesus Christ are also ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons set forth in the Bible is being possessed of the fullness of the deity. And so here is God being revealed to us in three personalities. And this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. We cannot explain how God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit compose one God. Literally, we say, oh, that's one, two, three. But the Bible plainly says there is one God. It speaks about there being one Lord. And it refers to the Father sometimes as that Lord. Jesus Christ sometimes as that Lord. There's just one. There's just one being. Sometimes we get our terms mixed up and we speak about three beings. No, there are three personalities, but one being. One God. One supreme being. He's the one that we worship. He's the one who came to save us. If there's some, someone here tonight who has not surrendered your life to him, we want to sing a song of invitation to encourage you because he is deity and he loves us and he's done all that he needs to do for our salvation. It's up to the individual now. If you're subject to the gospel invitation anyway, would you come as together we stand and sing?